Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program's Foundation in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, um, chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. This is the... um, story of the presentation of the Lord and the rite of purification prescribed by the law of Moses. Up until the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council, for a very long time, this gospel was celebrated on the 2nd of February and was called the Feast of the Purification. But it's used now not only for the Feast of what we call the Presentation now, but it's also used for the Feast of the Holy Family. It's interesting how it begins. When the day came for them to be purified as laid down by the law of Moses, the parents of Jesus took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, observing what stands written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male must be consecrated to the Lord and also to offer and sacrifice in accordance what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is another example, an interesting example. The Holy Family... Um, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, always observing the prescripts of the law of Moses. And in this law of Moses, according to what is to transpire, first of all, after eight days, the child is to be um, circumcised. And then after 40 days, they are to be presented to the Lord. And the idea really was kind of ransom them from the Lord in a way. Because the firstborn of the livestock, for instance, have to be sacrificed to the Lord. And uh, the firstborn of the human race has to be ransomed from the Lord with a gift here, it says, of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. In other words, a sacrifice had to be made to the Lord in exchange for the life of the child. And the child, therefore, was from then on the possession of the Lord, entrusted to the care of the parents, but in a special way had a very strong relationship with, with God. So the Holy Family now, while certainly what was the consciousness of the Holy Family about all this, um, obviously that's something that we don't know. But what we do know is that they were always faithful to the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus was faithful to the fulfillment of the law as well. Um, Somehow, you know, there's a strange interpretation of the relationship of Christianity to the law. And it's extracted from Paul's letters when Paul is talking, especially to the Galatians, talking about, you know, us being free from the law. But those are two radically different realities that we're talking about. Paul was talking about believing that our justification, our election, our salvation depended on a very careful adherence to the law of Moses. There is the law that underlies the whole foundation of the old covenant. He says that in the coming of Jesus Christ, that now that law is abrogated as far as salvation goes. And this is, this is affirmed in the Gospels over and over again, where Jesus makes sure that we know that it's not so much in the observance of the law, but it is, in fact, through faith that we then come into the fullness of a relationship with Christ, which is sealed in the sacraments in his body and blood. 
and, uh, and which draws us then into the life-giving blood of Christ, who is, we might even call him, the founder or the patriarch of the new covenant. And therefore, kind of replacing um, the blood of Abraham as a means of salvation with the blood of Jesus Christ, which we receive each time we receive the Eucharist. So this idea of being free from the law is not meaning that we are free from ecclesiastical law, that we are free of the Ten Commandments, that we are free. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that we gauge our salvation on the exactness with which we adhere to the law of Moses. And that's what Paul says is abrogated. In the preaching of the Pauline epistles, certainly in the 16th century, there was a, um, this was exactly what Martin Luther was doing, preaching the Pauline understanding of the freedom from the law and uh, it being interpreted by the peasants, the serfs of the empire and so forth as meaning they were free from every law. And it created the really disastrous peasant revolt of 1525 in which Luther turned against the peasants and kind of put an end to the popular spread of Lutheranism. From then on, it was promoted and nurtured and enforced by civil authority. And the result of it was over 100,000 peasants killed because of a misinterpretation of Paul's understanding of the law, which was fed to them by the reformers, which when they believed it and took it real and took it literally, cost them their lives. Because that was never what was intended by St. Paul. St. Paul never said, we do not have to obey the law. He simply said that obedience to the law is not the object, is not the instrument of our salvation, of our justification. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith in him, our engagement in him. And part of the way we show him respect and we show our faith in him is to observe the divine commands, whether they come to us from the Ten Commandments, whether they come to us in the great commandments of Jesus, or whether they are mediated for us through the law of the church. And the example of that obedience and respect for all of that, we now find here in the Gospel according to Luke, when, when the time came when the day for them to be purified is laid down by the law of Moses, the parents of Jesus took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, and observing what stands written in the law of the Lord, and so forth. So that we have now an example of God himself as the child Jesus, obeying his own law, the law which he himself had given to Moses, and doing so in uh, being presented in the temple and the rites of purification taking place according to the traditions of Israel. Then, while they were there, there was a man named Simeon, and he was an upright and a devout man, and he looked forward to Israel's comforting, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until his eyes had set on the Christ of the Lord. And prompted by the Spirit, he came to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law required, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you can let your servant go in peace. Just as you promised, because my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for all the nations to see, 
a light to enlighten the pagans and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon now gives a great prophecy. But this is interesting, too, because what is prophecy? Prophecy is not divining the future. It's not like soothsayers or fortune tellers. Prophecy is simply articulating the truth of what God is saying to his people at that time. And so it is not in the purview of the prophet to be able to look deeply into the future and say, all right, these are the things that are going to happen in the times to come. The only glimpse into the future that we get through the prophets was the promises that are contained in the prophecies, which are an authoritative interpretation of God's word to the holy men who became the great prophets of Israel. So like if we read Isaiah's prophecy... And we hear about the holy mountain, about the day of the Lord, all of those things. They are all, in a way, what God is saying to his people in order to encourage them and in order to let them know that he is with them, that he has their interests at heart, and that he fulfill, will fulfill his promises in time to come. There is no way in the prophecies that we can go back and say, oh, look, he saw into the future. Every one of them is couched in something very, very contemporary to the prophet. Even, for instance, in, the, in Isaiah 7, 14, when the, the, uh, the prophecy of the virgin birth, that it is even that is couched in terms which are not definitive about the future, except the core reality is present because God has revealed that to the prophet. But what that is, how that's to look, the identity of Mary or Jesus, any of that is no way, shape, or form clarified. It is not a prediction of a historical event that is to come. It is a, it is a formulation of a promise with an insight as to how that promise will be fulfilled. And that it is only when we come to the Old, to the New Testament, that we can look back and, and with specificity see the things that were in the Old Testament that now have been fulfilled. They don't look exactly like the Old Testament prophecy, but the core of it all is there. And that, I think, is, is a lesson for us now, is Simeon prophesizes. For he said, I have been promised that I will see the salvation of Israel through the Holy Spirit and through the working of the, of the grace of God. Simeon is privileged to be able to understand, to see the identity of the child Jesus, to see him as the fulfillment um, of the promise, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. This is not saying, and so this is how it's going to work out. And say that. What he said was, you know, this is the fulfillment of the promise. Now we can see concretely. Now we can see existentially what it is that the Lord has promised. And the Lord has given me the grace now to see and to look into this reality in my life. And so he he's, recites his, his, his famous prayer, his hymn that we call the Nunc Dimittis. Now, Lord, you may dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for all nations to see, which you have prepared. And so this relationship between prophecy and fulfillment is fascinating. Because we say that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, too often we get the idea that to prophesy something is to see deeply into the future of something. 
And that's not what it means. It means to see deeply into God's relationship with his people. And in that relationship with his people is contained his promise and that which gives hope to people and that which eventually will manifest itself in time, but which has not yet fully manifested itself. There was a theory in biblical scholarship back in the 60s and so forth called the census planior or the fuller sense. And that was a restraint in a way of trying to see more in the Old Testament that was there and only allowing us to use the Old New Testament to interpret it when there was a direct reference. I think that, that in a sense that was too restrictive. But on the other hand, we have to be very careful, too, that we don't impose upon the prophecies of old the things that we know to have been fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has been promised, certainly, and Simeon even says that, just as you promised. So that prophecy, then, is the revelation of the truth of God's word. It is the authority of God's word, filled not so much with visions of the future, but with promises. And those promises are wrapped in prophetic language, like the mountain in Isaiah, the, the mountain of plenty, like the imagery of the, uh, the child laying down, putting his hand in the adder's lair, and the lamb laying down with the lion, and so forth. All of those are are just the promise of God to his people that there is, we might say, there is an outcome to this relationship that you have. There is a consummation of that relationship. And that relationship is consummated in the fulfillment of the promises I am making you. But you do not yet know what they are. You have ideas in your mind, and I have given you those ideas through the prophets. And when Jesus himself speaks, it's usually more concrete than the prophetic visions, but nonetheless, he doesn't lay out distinctly, now it's going to be like this. He simply says, trust me and walk with me, and I promise you that what I have told you will come to fulfillment. That's what the Nunc Dimittis is. Trust me, walk with me, and I promise you, you will participate in the fulfillment of all the things that I will give to you, that I have promised to you. And so after Simeon's prophecy, the gospel said that the child's father and mother stood there wondering at the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, you see this child, he is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, destined to be a sign that is rejected and a sword will pierce your own soul too, so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. What a fascinating insight that is. The child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. That's not in, as a prophecy that's true, but that's not specifying what exactly that means. It is the life experience of Jesus which will bring into clarity and into focus those things which the Lord has promised to his people. And that certainly it was the rise and the fall of many in Israel through the work, the prophet, through the teaching, through the miracles, through the presence of the Son of God, through Jesus, throughout all of the Gospels. We can watch many rising up to the occasion of faith in the Lord, and we see many falling in rejection and fear of his threat to the stability of their, of their own um, comfort levels, of their, own, of their own sense of place and position in the world. 
I think there is no greater opportunity to see the futility of clinging to all sorts of earthly realities um, for our own sake and our own comfort than in watching the scribes and the Pharisees go through this ordeal with Jesus Christ, that to see them clinging to that which just simply passes away and is no more. And in passing away and being no more, there are very few of them whose names we even remember, and we remember them in a very negative sort of way. We remember the names of Annas and Caiaphas, and we remember the names of Pontius Pilate, and none of those names are held in any esteem or any honor in the ages to come. But Jesus lives, and Jesus is present, and Jesus is real. And those who have chosen Jesus Christ over the securities of this world, which they themselves have created, anyone who has done that then travels with him to the suffering of the cross and the glory of the resurrection. And Simeon then turns to Mary. And this is the intimacy and redemption between Mary and redemption is brought out in this. For she herself now is to share the story of Christ's life. So often we, we kind of think, well, Mary shows up in the infancy narratives of Luke. She's around in the infancy narrative of Matthew. And then she's really not very much present through the rest of the Gospels. Nothing could be further from the truth that it's an interesting exercise, for instance, to sit down and go through each Gospel, find every reference to the Blessed Mother. And what you find is that she is at presence and in some way contributing to every major proclamation and every major event in Jesus' life. Certainly she is here, the one who brings him to the temple. She is the one then who presents him to the Lord. She and Joseph are the ones who ransom him from the necessity of being sacrificed to the Father, which he will do in due time, but which at this point in time, the fulfillment of his deliverance lies far ahead for Jesus at this stage of his life. Eventually, he will be offered as a sacrifice to the Father. And this is something that we struggle with, too, in contemporary Catholicism, and especially in contemporary Catholic liturgy. And I think this gospel helps us with this quite a bit, that the idea of the Mass is a communal celebration. A communal celebration of what? A communal celebration of the resurrection, a communal celebration of Jesus among us, it's all of those things. But it is also in the fulfillment of the ancient laws, the offering of the Son to the Father as an atonement for peoples, an atonement for the sins of God's people. One of the catechists of the late 20th century and the ones who had kind of reconstructed Catholicism into kind of a, a, a banal philosophy of life, actually, um, that uh, that they wanted to remove this because what kind of a God is it that demands the sacrifice of his own son? And Jesus certainly didn't have to atone to the Father. And it has nothing to do with that very personal idea. And this is part of the fruit of the Reformation, that everything, nothing is ecclesial, everything is personal theologically. And that uh, it's as Romano Guardini points out that, that uh, Protestantism basically never even used the, much the word church or or had a deep sense of the church until um, until uh, the middle of the 20th century when it needed an identity over and against uh, Nazism. And that's when the word church started to become used more, more uh, 
popularly among among the Protestant denominations. The Mass is a theology of the ages. It reaches back into the prophecies, and in bring and the prophecies it brings forth the reality of the prophecies, which is the person of Jesus. And in this person of Jesus, it is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Simeon. It is when Jesus and Mary come, or when Joseph and Mary come to the temple to offer Christ to the Lord, to offer Jesus to the Father. In the traditional Hebrew sense, he is ransomed by two turtle doves or two pigeons. But himself having this tremendously deep and knowledge and sense of, of the universal reality of his being, of his presence, which had to have dawned on him, even in his humanity, somewhere near the end of his life. We find in the end of this gospel, he is filled with wisdom and favor, and he grows to maturity and so forth. His humanity is not immediately open to the beatific vision. His humanity is a cloud that covers the truth that his divinity instinctively, intuitively knows, but why he is protected by his humanity from being conscious of the fullness of what he actually does know inside of himself as a person. His humanity is his protection, but as that humanity is torn away from him, as he approaches the inhumane, then he begins slowly, it seems, to realize what it is that he is accomplishing, not through the veil of humanity, but in a deeper, deeper sense of himself as a person, as a divine person. And so he steps then onto the stage of salvation history, and he says in the end, it is consummated. Now it has all been fulfilled. He has finally fulfilled the prescriptions of the law of Moses. He has finally fulfilled the anticipation of the prophets. He has ransomed humanity by being the firstborn who was offered in sacrifice to his father. And that in so doing, it is not an inhumane, bloody, horrible kind of thing that this vicious father is, is, is demanding of his son. That's not what's going on. What's going on is an act of consummate love, of being willing to give oneself totally into the arms of the loving Father in order that humanity might be atoned for their sins, in order that humanity might be redeemed. And that's why St. John calls the crucifixion the glory of the Lord, that uh, it is not just in the, is not in the final triumph, but it is in the sacrifice. And liturgically, that's the thing we struggle with in contemporary Catholic liturgy. It's not that, oh, well, the, you know, this form was better, or that form was better, or anything like that. Any, any liturgical form that does not acknowledge the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb, as Revelation speaks about, the sacrifice of the Lamb, which is the, ran which is the ransom for humanity. And any that doesn't recognize that then is somehow or other in an inadequate form of the expression of liturgical relationship between God's people and his Father. That, um, that and this, in a, in a sense, um, if the literature is to be believed, it was this very thing that Anibali Benigni wanted to remove from the liturgy because it was an obstacle and a stumbling block to Protestant worship. And if that is true, we can say he certainly had some degree of success that uh, for which 
God help him, he, he will be accountable. Because this is the thing. This, this gospel is so important for us. This is the dynamic of salvation. And Simeon places Mary very firmly into this drama. For he says to her that a sword will pierce your own soul so that the secret thoughts of many may be laid bare. The sufferings of the church are prefigured in the sorrows of Mary. Can we say in the sorrows of Mary that we can therefore articulate the suffering of the church in its specificity? No. Should we be surprised when the church suffers? We should not. Because this is part of, as Paul says, groaning until therefore the redemption of our bodies. This is the strain and the stress of being torn between heaven and earth, of being torn between time and eternity. This is the passageway. In a way, in, in a way we might even begin to compare it to the birth of a child, that the labor pains, the struggle in order to come into new life are present in the church in every age, in every time, and in every place. And all of the dangers of birth are present to it. And all of the dangers of birth, unfortunately, manifest themselves over and over again in the life of the church. And this is why the church and the liturgy are so integral into this process of salvation. This is not just, you know, Snoopy's happy dance. This is, as a matter of fact, this is the struggle of humanity to grow into the fullness of its human nature and in so doing to burst out of that into the divinity promised to humanity by the creator of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, through the ransoming of humanity by the sacred lamb, by the son, in fulfillment of the temple requirements, the prophetic requirements, the mosaic requirements of Israel. And I think that, therefore, as we look now to the Feast of the Holy Family, we are looking to the fulfillment, and we can say with Simeon, Now, Master, you can let your servant go in peace, because my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for all nations to see. Let us thank the Lord for this gift. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.